0: you know if i have a responsibility to really analyze things before i suggest them to people and it's not because you know oftentimes we 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 use this it's called the do no harm fallacy we have this idea well if it's not hurting like nobody's ever gone to the hospital at least that i know of i don't i don't want to be quoted on this but i don't think anybody's ever gone to a hospital or had a serious injury from cupping uh, at the same time, if they're using their resources to do that instead of something that could potentially be more helpful, then it is doing harm.
1: Welcome to the Barbend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by com. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Teddy Wilsey, a sports rehab and performance specialist who works with athletes of all levels in building strong, resilient movement patterns. Dr. Wilsey is one of the go-to specialists for helping people exercise smarter. And we touch on many of the misconceptions around optimal training and rehab today, including the types of thinking that can actually do the most harm to athletes in the long-term. I do wanna give a big shout out to this episode's sponsor, BSN. BSN has been around for nearly 20 years, and they're a global leader in sports nutrition. From their protein powder, including their partnership line with Coldstone Creamery, to pre-workout, protein bars, and more, BSN has won more than 35 sports nutrition awards over the last few years. My personal favorite of their flavors is the Birthday Cake Remix Syntha 6. I literally hid some in my desk to keep the rest of the Barbend team from using it all. That's a true story. Also, I want to take another second to say we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Bar Bend podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. Teddy, thanks so much for joining us today. I just want to dive right into it because I know you're a man with a lot of different interests in the health <laughs> and fitness space, to, to put it lightly. What is an area of strength and conditioning that you find most intriguing or interesting right now and why?
0: Uh, I would, David, thanks for having me on. I would, I would say that the area of strength and conditioning that I find to be really intriguing right now is the use of data and analytics uh, in general you know, and that spans from kind of the popular term of sports science to, uh, to more just, you know, measuring players readiness on a daily basis. We're using a lot of different metrics and we're trying to figure out what's helpful, what's not, you know, the classic term paralysis by analysis always, always comes up in this conversation. And so, uh, yeah, I I think that it's a fascinating area and, and, We're measuring a lot right now, and we'll kind of, you know, the dust will settle, and we'll figure out, hey, what what's important, or what should we not worry as much about.
1: Now, I I know that's a that's a very broad scope, and and I like how you put that. We don't have all the answers right now. That's why we test and experiment, and test hypotheses and things like that. But what are some particular data points or sets or or metrics that you find have potentially a lot of promise to measure sports preparedness, recovery, and performance?
0: Yeah. You know, there's, uh, I think that the most important things to monitor and I call these low, the low hanging fruit are the basic things that you can track with uh, pen and paper or how a lot of Renaissance people these days would do it would be on a Google sheet, you know, and it's, it's your steps per day. It's what you did in your workout. It's tracking your training. It's your hydration levels and your nutrition. Uh, but a lot of those things take, you know, they take time, they take discipline, and they take consistency. You have to log. If you've ever logged everything you eat in a day for any period of time, it, it's a job in and of itself. And the only way that it's not is if you just follow a pretty boring plan, you know. And so I think that those are the most important first things that anybody should address if they're trying to uh, make improvements in their life but you know from a consumer standpoint there are a lot of products out there um uh, whoop is a big one and and you know they're they are products that they measure people's heart rate they look at heart rate variability they look at trends over time they try to tell people hey you had a higher strain today you know uh they look at sleep too obviously sleep is a really important topic and so um you know i think that the 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 compilation of all of this information together creates a very powerful metric a, a recovery metric uh, you know, and then you have to call into practice how how are we measuring this heart rate variability? You know, are we measuring it through the wrist, which isn't as accurate, or are we measuring it on on a chest strap? You know, is somebody wearing that chest strap all day? Most likely no. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways that you can go with those metrics. I think that the best place to improve your quality of life is to start with the easy ones. Mm.
1: We often see a trickle down effect when it comes to performance, technology, and recovery. Starts with the elite athletes, the pro sports teams, the people where a lot of money is on the line, people in teams where a lot of money is on the line based on their performance. And then we see those things kind of trickle down to your average Joe, the everyday consumer, the weekend warrior, as that technology becomes something that's a little more accessible to you know, the average person just looking to get fitter, exercise better and recover smarter. What are some of the maybe higher tech things or some of the things that might seem in your experience, not quite attainable or measurable for the average consumer right now that you could see becoming a little more mainstream over the next decade or so?
0: I think it's, I think it's that, that daily readiness and monitoring, uh, you know, in, in a typical pro performance setting, the athletes are going to be wearing chest straps the whole time and we're going to be measuring their their heart rate, their heart rate response, their heart rate recovery, which is how fast your heart rate drops after a, a bout of cardio or, or a hard exercise. Uh, they're going to be measuring and they're going to be looking at these things over time and, and plotting them against what your normals are, what your norms, you know, because you can't really, for, for this type of physiological measuring, you can't compare against a standard. You have to You have to compare against yourself over time. And I think that this type of data will be much more commonplace. Uh, and and the other factor here is that it's just, it already is out there. It's just expensive, you know? And so uh, being a physical therapist and a strength and conditioning coach and somebody that people come to for me to help them with their injuries and their body and recovery and feeling better, if sometimes I think that something is, if I'm working with a high-level athlete and I think, hey, you would probably benefit just as much from this overall kind of lifestyle, uh, I don't want to say, you know, reboot, but this, this more, you would benefit from paying more attention to your lifestyle. And and as you get older, you know, getting to your thirties, you want to optimize everything. I would tell a pro athlete, Hey, go get this, you know, use this all day. Whereas an everyday person, I don't know that it's always necessary. So I I think down the road, hopefully they'll be more affordable. They'll be more accurate. And, um, you know, and there'll be something that people can can incorporate more often. But for right now, I I think that, and for the foreseeable future, I think the easiest is, you know, going back to those basics, the things I mentioned earlier, the things that are boring, tracking the tracking those everyday routines.
1: Well, what's boring for, for some people might not be boring to you and me. I mean, we can nerd out (laughs) on training and recovery all, all day. When working with clients whether it's you know on the physical therapy side or as someone who's just generally in the space trainer and, and working with athletes of all different levels what are some of the common misconceptions you think athletes have these days when it comes to performance and especially recovery
0: You know I think that people are always looking to add they're tr- they're like hey what recovery workout can I do what stretch am I missing what what soft tissue release uh you know protocol am i am i not doing correctly and i think that oftentimes when we really look at the larger physiological sense of recovery it comes down to stress and the and how your body handles this stress and so i think the thing that a lot of people are missing a lot of athletes regular people in general are again it always you know i'm i'm kind of a cynic i i like to really question things until they're proven i think that's part of the nature of science and uh the most important things that we know work really well are dialing in those the basics, you know. So what
1: what else kind of triggers the inner cynic in you right, in the right. health and fitness space? I want to <laughs> dig in on that. You can't just yeah. say you're a cynic and not have me follow up with like, okay, what do you want yeah, to be cynical yeah. well, about?
0: You know, there's there's just a kind of, you know, the misconception I said everybody likes to add, you know, there's always There's always this, the new, you know, shiny ball that people want to try out, that people want to experiment with. And, uh, oftentimes that, that new modality that, you know, Hey, after Michael Phelps, you know, showed up to the Olympics with all those cupping marks on him, everybody was asking me, Hey, do you do cupping? Can you do cupping? You know, it's like, there's always, people are always looking for that kind of that magical quick fix, but it just doesn't exist. And so that's where the cynicism part comes into play, because, you know, if I have a responsibility to really analyze things before I suggest them to people, and it's not because, you know, oftentimes we, we, we use this, it's called the do no harm fallacy. We have this idea, well, if it's not hurting, like nobody's ever gone to the hospital, at least that I know of, I don't, I don't want to be quoted on this, but I don't think anybody's ever gone to a hospital or had a serious injury from cupping. Uh, At the same time, if they're using their resources to do that instead of something that could potentially be more helpful, then it is doing harm. Because we always have an opportunity cost. We we only have so many days that we're you know so many minutes that we're awake each day, so many days to recover and to train. And so we want to optimize all of that time. And if we're spending time doing things that uh, are really kind of for they're popularized because they're companies they make money they're trying to sell things and so that's where the cynical part of of my mindset comes into play and i think a lot of my colleagues in the in this field have the same you know the same views because we've seen a lot of things come and go over the years
1: what is something that maybe surprised you with its staying power in the in the health and wellness industry
0: (laughs) that's a great question i would have to say crossfit
1: Really? Okay. What when did you first come across CrossFit? Just to just to give context to this answer.
0: Um to 2007-2008.
1: Okay. And and what did what was your first impression?
0: I saw people doing workouts in the um in the I was a senior in undergrad at this time and I saw these guys that used to be more kind of powerlifter types doing these workouts where they were just going to, they were clearly just going to fatigue and doing a lot of reps, uh, in a fatigue state and doing some different types of movements, um, all combined in a way that I hadn't seen before. It was, you know, circuit training is essentially what it looked like. And I thought to myself, what, what are they doing? They're going to get hurt. And, and then, you know, I was at this time, this was years before I was ever, uh, in physical therapy. I didn't go to physical therapy school for, a number of years after I uh, finished undergrad. And so I was I was in the strength and conditioning world, and a lot of us strength and conditioning coaches, uh, it, it was snobbery, and I don't think people should be proud of it, but they kind of stuck their nose up to CrossFit saying, oh, these people are going to get hurt. They're doing too many things in a the row. They're not resting in between their Olympic their Olympic lifting sets. What the hell is that? And I thought that it would kind of burn out, but the beauty of what CrossFit has done is they brought camaraderie to – the fitness space. And so instead of everybody showing up and working out in these big, you know, uh, 25,000 square foot golds gyms and all being on their own, they show up to a 5,000 square foot box without equipment with beautiful sight lines across the whole place. And they all get to know each other and work out together and, and they do the same thing. And so I think that CrossFit is really, it's a sociological, uh, evolution is is what's caused the popularity of it and then they've they've evolved and adapted you know there are a lot of gyms where a new member comes and they're not ready to hop in they they'll have a system in place hey let's do 10 personal training sessions and get you get you ramped up for this you know let's come to this class which is a little scale back so they they pivoted and they did a really good job like any business and company has to do to meet their their customer base
1: so let's take it back to you talk about your education and not going to physical therapy school right out of college. I've talked to a lot of physical therapists where that's what they know what they want to do. They get an undergrad degree might be related to wellness and fitness. it might not. then they go directly to you know go work toward their their dpt What was your path like, and why did you why did you want to pursue this particular educational path and career uh,
0: i I had an idea that I wanted to do physical therapy from the beginning however i just kind of got caught up in strength and conditioning and infatuated by the gym and and the idea of making gains and the way that we had this control over our body and we could change you know our our function and our body over time i was just kind of infatuated by that i in hindsight i was big into strength training from the time i was in middle school and in high school i just have always been kind of fascinated by it, by it and so once I had the strength and conditioning experience and I got that taste, I was like, I don't want to go back to school for physical therapy. I don't want to go wear khakis and work in a, you know, a dimly lit office with brown carpet and trade trade that for the gym. Uh, so, you know, that I eventually did. And that brought me to where I am now, where I, I'm i in a gym practicing <laughs> physical therapy. So it's, you know, best of both worlds. <laughs>
1: You you can't. You're not wearing khakis in the gym. You're not rolling into into leg day wearing khakis. That's kind of the no, image I had in my no, head. No,
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. I um I get to wear exactly. I work for myself. I get to wear what I want and still practice physical therapy. So it's pretty cool.
1: And and just to clarify, that's definitely jean short cutoffs, right? In the gym, da- you're not training. Daisy, if you're not wearing
0: a Daisy Dukes, just you know. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm only being a little I'm I'm only joking a little bit. You can see Teddy on social media. He's only wearing those sometimes. Teddy, your yeah, own yeah. pursuit of strength and conditioning, you said that you were kind of distracted by the gym. You were distracted by the gains. Who hasn't been, right? Who hasn't been daydreaming about working out? At least people listening to this podcast probably understand that feeling to some extent. What was your individual pursuit of fitness like? Were you working toward max strength? Were you working toward putting on muscle mass? And how did that evolve over time?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I'm I feel like my evolution was probably similar to a lot of people my age. i um, in my mid 30s. You know, I started off with the the bodybuilding exposure because that's all there really was when when we were younger, that and strongman. And, you know, you so you saw guys like Bill Kazmaier uh, and Magnus Sorensen doing strongman. And then you saw bodybuilders. And, and so you figured, well, strongman's not really accessible. Where the, where am I going to get my hands on an Atlas stone or a car? So I'm going to do bodybuilding instead. And so, you know, you start off, you want to gain muscle, put muscle on your body. I was a high school football player. Um, in terms of my own fitness pursuit, you know, I was influenced by bodybuilding, but at the same time for the first six years or so, it was more of a, uh, it was more focused on, on performance and being a football player. Uh, at the same time, I didn't really know the difference, you know? And so, um, that's, uh, that's something that evolved over time. So then, so then I get to my college age and I've already had one shoulder surgery at this point. So I already had this kind of this interest in physical therapy and rehab and staying healthy. And uh, and at that point, it's all about kind of bodybuilding, putting on muscle. So did that for a couple of years, and then I get to my strength and conditioning career, and I'm exposed to powerlifting for the first time. And I'm seeing these guys that are smaller than I am lifting weights way heavier than I've ever touched, and I'm like, I'm like, man, this is kind of cool. So I got into powerlifting, and that's that's really what has um, driven my pursuit of strengthening of my own fitness to this day is my love of pushing heavy weight. So it's more of a kind of a power building approach. I think that's what a lot of people probably do that, that are in this space, but they're not necessarily trying to compete, uh, on the regular basis. And so, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's squat bench deadlift and, and all your accessories. And then, um, for me too, I, I'm currently doing a, a fat loss plan with a coach and I'm, uh, trying to dial in the physique side of things, which is something that I haven't really done as much in the past. I'm about uh, three months into that. And so that's, this has been a fun ride so far and it's just, you know, just new goals to try to challenge myself.
1: What kind of, I am curious, what kind of uh, fat loss or, or physique goals do you have? Are you trying to hit a particular body fat percentage or are you just trying to, you know, lean out in a way you haven't done in the past?
0: yeah just try just the latter just trying to lean out in a way that I haven't really done. I've never really sustained a sub ten percent physique, and I uh, figured you know, let me give it a try and see how it feels and um it's 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 honestly just a challenge for myself and it i I got the idea right when quarantine started. I was like, you know what? I've been talking about doing this for years. Uh, I don't, I don't see myself going out to dinner and drinks with friends anytime soon. So let's, let's roll with this. And, you know, my wife has competed in physique in the past and I actually did her macro programming for her. And so like, she understands what I'm doing and she's supportive. uh, But, you know, I decided to hire a coach too, just so that I could kind of leave the thinking side of it up to him and me and I could just do the execution.
1: Well, it's a, it's difficult to be objective about, about yourself. I mean, this is something that I'm sure you face with clients all the time. They think they know what's best, but it's like, we don't really know what's best for ourselves.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, i I had a, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine programming my strength training for six months from August until like February or something like that. And it was, it was great. And it was, I was like, why are you making me squat so much? But I got strong as hell. And, you know, and so it's, it's he, and he said, you know what, you're a strong bencher you're going to go three months without benching. And I was like, all right, fine. <laughs> and so all I did was pretty much squats and overhead presses and, uh, and deadlifts. And it was a great shock to the body. And, uh, I, my overhead press is stronger than it's been in four years. And so I think that sometimes hiring, no matter how much, you know, no matter how much you do, especially if it's something that you do, hiring somebody else to, to look objectively from the outside can be immensely helpful.
1: Who are some of your favorite athletes to work with? And I don't mean name names. I don't, I'm not just saying, hey, give me mm-hmm. your client list. <laughs> but, but what, what sorts, of, I should rephrase, what sorts of athletes? So, you know, could be oh, a particular man. sport. And I, I've asked this of physical therapists before. Some people are like, oh, I love working with Olympic lifters. Or I love working with CrossFitters. Yeah. Or I hate working with, you know, XYZ. <laughs> I won't, I won't name names on, on the negative side. But, you know, who, what, what, what types of athletes really uh, intrigue you and do you like getting hands on with?
0: You know, I would I would have to go more towards like a personality dimension when I think about this and uh, okay. the, as opposed to the the sport that they perform. Selfishly I've uh, you know, having had two shoulder surgeries and and going through that myself, I think that I can help overhead athletes a lot and I do enjoy working with them from a biomechanics, from a, a strengthening, you know, standpoint uh so Any any CrossFitter, any weightlifter, uh, swimmers. I work with a lot of swimmers locally here in the DC area. Um, I love working with young younger athletes that still have a lot of room for growth, and that's where the uh, the kind of the personality metric I was going to mention comes from. I like working. I, I enjoy the teaching role, and I like working with these athletes that I can make a difference. Uh, for them for the long term. So I can teach them ideas about that low-hanging fruit that I mentioned earlier about recovery and what it really means. And uh, hopefully, you know, give them tools to to use for their careers going forward and then for their lives after they're competitive athletes, because the majority of our life, we're not competitive athletes. But, um, you know, hopefully I've had a, I use the term exercise IQ, hopefully I've had a, a positive impact on their exercise IQ. And help them to better understand their own bodies, how to move their bodies. So um, that's the group that I really love working with. I just get fired up working with these young kids, uh, high school, young college age. And then uh, besides that, you know, it's I think it's the same answer for almost anybody in the coaching and uh, therapy and rehab world. It's people that are intrinsically motivated, people that want to be there. You know, they make it fun. But at the same time, uh, I welcome the challenges of of people that are uh, in need of more behavioral change and, and uh, help along the way. And so, you know, I, I term myself a behavioral and movement interventionist because I do view that behavioral change and, and habits are such a big part of what we do. And so uh, I like helping people kind of figure that stuff out a little bit too. And it it always helps me and and you know we're not always we don't always listen to our own advice and so it always helps me to reinforce things as i'm telling other people hey you should do this you know <laughs> i used to do that i'm going to start doing that again
1: i i was talking to dan john who is one of the people in the fitness industry mm-hmm. i respect the most on a podcast a few weeks ago and dan very famously you know he tells athletes a few things he's like train like this, don't overcomplicate it, get sleep and brush your teeth. And there's an (laughs) element, or floss your teeth, it's floss. He's like, there's this element of behavioral coaching and of Encouraging habits and routine that kind of permeate everything Dan puts out there. It's interesting to hear you talk about that because you know I'm not sure if that's influenced by Dan or if it's just something that you know two very smart people come to independently in the fitness space. But there's that thread there of influencing positive behavioral change and and habits. What are some habits that you're really passionate about helping to instill or encouraging, especially in younger athletes?
0: Uh, I would say consistency and internal feedback. And so um, those aren't habits that you would see listed on, hey, these are good habits to be successful. But the the consistency one is, you know, if you commit to do something, do it regularly. And if you don't, if you're, if you're not all in, if you don't have time to make that intervention a part of your routine, then then don't do it yet. You know, you got to wait until you're ready. And then the internal feedback is, you know, because of the context of the people of where I'm working with these people, you know, let's say I'm working with somebody who uh, is recovering from an ACL. Not everybody's Adrian Peterson, who famously came back after five months five months after surgery. A lot of people are Carson Wentz, who took over a year to come back from his ACL and still didn't look very good. You know, there's a lot of athletes like that. And so, uh, the habit that I try to develop with them is checking in with their body and improving their internal feedback mechanisms. And if they struggle with that, or if they struggle with self-regulation, auto-regulation, uh, which a lot of us do, then I try to get them to start charting things, be consistent with a journal, even if it's just at the end of each day, a one, two, or three for how you feel. Those, uh, in the context of of how I work with people, I find those to be very effective habits. And uh, even if an athlete isn't doing that a year from now, but they start to feel some other injury, they'll you know, hopefully it'll kind of, uh, it'll, you know, rev up some, some old ideas that they had about, oh, I was monitoring my body before. Like I'm going to start monitoring again, it again. And, and, you know, and so uh, that internal feedback mechanism, and I talk to people that I talked to people about that from day one. And I tell them it point blank, I'm like, I want to help you develop your internal feedback mechanism and be more in touch with how your body's doing and the other piece of that too, and this is, I'm going to kind of go, I won't go on too far of a tangent here, but the other piece of the internal feedback mechanism is that it's not always a break. It doesn't always tell you slow down. A lot of times, if the let's say you're working with somebody that maybe they're a little bit too cautious at times, or they just don't need to be as cautious as maybe they're being. That internal feedback mechanism can actually mean, hey, go, go, go. It can mean, yeah, your knee was a little sore, or you had some doms, or your back was a little tight after deadlifts. But you actually felt better after the day you squat, you you know, you, you woke up that day feeling a little stiff, but you felt better after you trained. So when we start to chart these things, we can also show people we can use it both ways. You can use it as a break or as the gas pedal. And so I just find that internal feedback to be immensely powerful in terms of uh, teaching athletes how to, how to work within their own bodies.
1: Is there a realm of strength and conditioning could be a knowledge base, a particular methodology, even a movement practice that you are really excited to learn more about in, you know, the next stage of your career over the next few years.
0: Ooh, that is a good question. You're just full of good questions, David. I'm, I'm stalling over here cause I'm like, what is this next realm, this uncharted territory?
1: I, I'm a professional question asker, man. That's what I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's great. No, I, I think a, um, I'm going to approach this as a, an area that I have room for growth in. And that is the work that is work with kettlebells and 3d motion. It's something that I've always been interested in from the, you know, back from the gray cook reaching and, and days and, and getting into triplanar motion and some influences from PRI and all that. But I think that I definitely have room for growth in that field of, you know, people call them kind of the primal movers, but the people that are, uh, the folks that are out there swinging kettlebells in, in different directions and, and doing these catches, you know, a lot of my training over the years has been focused more on how can I de- develop the highest amount of force with the most weight. And so I think that, um, as I get a little bit older, my body is going to thank me for learning a little bit more about movement without high loads all the time.
1: That that's certainly something that as <laughs> as in my own aging experience, I could certainly I can certainly relate to it and certainly feel the impact of, especially during this quarantine period where I haven't touched a barbell in months, but I've been doing a lot of movement in planes that might not be so normal to me. And I, I gotta say, I actually feel pretty great. Teddy, where is the best place for people to keep up to date with the work you're doing, the knowledge you're not only putting out but accumulating yourself as your own practice grows? Uh,
0: I would say Instagram is probably the the place that I'm most easily recognized and where and where I am on the most often. Uh, my name is Strength Coach Therapy on Instagram. It's all one word: Strength Coach Therapy.
1: Excellent. Well, Teddy, thanks so much for joining us today. And I really appreciate the conversation. And it sounds like you you treat every day as a, as a learning experience. And uh, the hope through this podcast is that our listeners can do the same, talking to interesting people like yourself. So I truly appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on.
0: Thanks for having me, Dave. It was a great conversation.